0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Our Lady and Dr. Devotion, the show dedicated to furthering the knowledge and love of the Mother of God, presented by member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Alexander Krozick, and I am joined by our guest, Father Herman Fleece, professor at Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Welcome to the show, Father. Hello. Well, dear listeners, today we will be discussing the life of Our Lady, certainly a very important topic to discuss. When you love someone, you want to know all about them. And since we, of course, want to love Our Lady as much as possible, How could we not but be interested in learning of her life and also her virtues that we might imitate them? That last part is quite important. So as we go through each event in her life, we also want to see what examples she leaves us for imitation. But before we start the discussion of the various events in Our Lady's life, is there anything you would like to say by way of introduction, Father?
1: Yes. And so we're going to now focus for a couple of episodes on the actual life of Our Lady, and we will try to reconstruct some of the particulars, like what she did and when she got married and, and so forth and so on. Um, so the, fir- the first thing to be noted is that uh, we have very, very little in sacred scripture concerning the particulars of the life of Our Lady, except those parts which are directly connected to the essentially the redemption by Our Lord, like the Passion and His ministry. So that means that Concerning the early life of Our Lady, before the Annunciation, we have nothing. And concerning the life of Our Lady, after the Ascension of Our Lord, we have very, very little. But still, that's in Holy Scripture. We will still uh, base ourselves in uh, first tradition, we have Holy Tradition, and then we have also pious traditions, that is, traditions that come to us from the Holy Fathers and the Saints. Then we have also... Um, Well, And there we should notice that the pious traditions don't belong to the faith, one is not bound to believe them, but they have a value and they are uh, certainly um, venerable and so forth and so on. And then we have also pious and probable conjectures from the saints, like insightful reflections, and uh, then we have the doctors and learned men uh, who have their opinions and conjectures based in history, knowledge of the customs of the time and of the Jews, reasonable suppositions, etc., etc. And then we have also more or less probable private opinions of theologians based on various principles of theology and so forth. So essentially for the life of Our Lady, most of the things we are going to base ourselves in these things. So there will be a margin of different opinions and sometimes it won't get to more than a very good probability. But again, these traditions and opinions are not to be uh, despised, but they are to be uh, considered with with a certain uh, respect.
0: Well, Father, we've obviously just finished up on the Immaculate Conception, so that leads us right into the birth and early life of Our Lady. What do we know about her birth and early life, Father?
1: Well, a few points we should uh, uh, remark. The first is Our Lady came from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. Just like Saint Joseph, the scriptures say many times that the Messiah descended from David, and this applies to Our Lady uh, strictly, not to Saint Joseph, though he also came, because Our Lady alone was a natural parent of Our Lord. Um, and then Our Lady was not only did not only uh, descend from uh, the family of David but she was also of the priestly uh, stock, the priestly line, uh, just as uh, St. Elizabeth, her cousin, was. So she had both the kingly blood and priestly blood. And St. Augustine says uh, on this subject, it was fitting that the flesh of the master be generated not only of royal stock, but also from a priestly one.
0: It seems like it'd be a fitting time, Father, since we're here, to
1: perhaps say a word or two about our
0: lady's parents.
1: Yes. So there is a very, very well-founded and ancient um, tradition, venerable tradition, that says uh, the names uh, of our lady's parents were St. Joachim and St. Anne. We find this in St. Epiphanius already and St. John Damascene, And Benedict Fourteenth says the following, the common opinion of the Western and Eastern Church through the centuries, that the parents of the Blessed Virgin were called Joachim and Anne seems reasonable, especially since there are no solid reasons to the contrary. Again, as we said, it's uh, a tradition, a very venerable tradition, which should be retained. Another tradition that we have, besides their names, is that Our Lady was conceived when Saint Anne was barren, and her barrenness, uh, her infertility, was removed miraculously through prayer actually, St. Joachim and St. Anne prayed a lot and then got her the prayer and removed the sterility from St. Anne and uh, that's when she conceived Our Lady and then um, we have another tradition uh, which says that uh, this one is not as uh, as common and as widespread but it's still uh, an old tradition says that God revealed to Saints Joachim and St. Anne the conception of Our Lady. Just as you remember in the Old Testament, an angel revealed to Abraham and Sarah the birth of Isaac, uh, and some are saints also in the Old Testament who got into that too much, but the same, there's a tradition that the same happened with Our Lady and certainly is most uh, fitting. If it happened with many of the great saints of the Old Testament, why not in the Mother of God? So there's a tradition to that, uh, very venerable. And then well, obviously, and then we spoke already about the dogma that Our Lady was immaculately conceived as a defined dogma of the faith. And then here I would like to remark that concerning the actual birth of Our Lady, there is a difference between Our Lord's birth and the birth of Our Lady. Our Lord was conceived while uh, His mother remaining always a virgin, and He was uh, born, His mother remaining a virgin. This was a unique miracle only happened with our Lord. In the case of Our Lady, her parents generated her in their usual manner, in holy matrimony. As a fruit of prayer, it is true, it was a miracle that uh, St. Anne could conceive, but it happened in the course of nature. Uh, So that's, that's important to remark here.
0: So that leads us to the next event in her life, Father, which is the presentation of Our Lady in the Temple, which we celebrate actually every year on November
1: 21st. So what can we say about this, Father? Uh, Good. So we have the the feast, therefore the fact of the presentation. Now authors differ a little in how they explain what we mean the church means by the presentation, but the best explanation, the best one is that the presentation commemorates the offering of the virgin in the temple by her parents, so that she, the virgin, might be dedicated to the service of God and there be properly educated. So that's really the meaning of the of the feast this is the explanation of the feast uh, given by Benedict the 14th he says quote not wishing to separate ourselves even a little from the common teaching of the church we say that the blessed virgin was presented in the temple in order to be perfectly educated there so that is the meaning of this mystery and this feast and why She was mm, presented to the temple and left to live in the temple. Uh, Well, as we just saw, first that she received the best religious education, and also that she lived an even holier life, being separated from the world. Also, that she be more directly devoted to the service of God. And also, um, well, in confirmation of this, we have. many of the Greek and Latin fathers attesting to this fact. Uh, we have St. John Damascene uh, says that Our Lady was born in St. Joachim's house and was later, soon, brought to the temple, where, enriched by the Holy Ghost, she became the abode of all the virtues. Again, a very strong, very strong tradition. So
0: what, around what age would Our Lady have been brought to, to the temple, Father?
1: Well, the most, the most common opinion is that, uh, and one that actually has a basis in ancient pious traditions, is that Our Lady was brought to the temple uh, to live there at the age of three. Now, again, it's not absolutely certain that that's the exact uh, exact age. It was when she was very young. But again, typically they, the authors will say when she was three. So was
0: this something extraordinary at that time, Father, to leave a little girl to live in the temple like that?
1: Uh, yes, that is a good question, uh, but it was not. It was actually common because um, the Hebrews had then a custom to consecrate uh, some uh, women to God uh, so that they could do uh, services according to their sex in the temple. That is, uh, well, first to be instructed in religious doctrine and then to help, for example, by sewing um, what well, they were the, used to be the vestments and the linen, etc. And so in that way, do their contribution to the worship. St. Ambrose says, we also read that virgins were assigned to the temple of Jerusalem. Uh, Now, these uh, virgins, it's not that they just attended the temple frequently, but they actually lived by the temple. There were like uh, apartments and places for men on one side and then women on the other, obviously. Uh, But you have uh, a place for the women, these, so to speak, consecrated virgins. To, to God. Uh, we have Josephus uh, ah, well, we have actually in Holy Scripture the story of uh, how Samuel was left very young in the temple with the high priest. Now, he was a boy, but there was the same for girls. Different places, obviously, but the same idea. Uh, and then we have Josephus refers that uh, there were dwellings for women in the temple. He's okay, so a very trustworthy Uh, testimony. He was a Jew and he knew knew all about it. He he testifies that. And then we have Origen, who speaks about a tradition that there was a place in the temple, he writes, where virgins were permitted to live and pray to God, but married women were not allowed to live there. Okay, so then as a way of summary, we have what Cornelius Alapide uh, writes. Um, He says, there were in Israel women who, worshipping God and disdaining the vanity of the world and desiring only to please God, consecrated themselves to him. They came daily to the courtyard to pray and to hear the commandments of God. This custom continued after the erection of the of the solemn tabernacle and especially after the construction of the temple, when certain dwellings were constructed at the door or atrium. From the time of her presentation at the age of three, the Blessed Virgin lived among these women and was educated there. It was like a religious community of devoted women, the type and shadow of our religious women today, that is, sisters. Uh, And then even more recent authors uh, have the same explanation and idea. We have a testimony of a certain uh, Morino. He says... The Greek fathers did not preach otherwise concerning Mary's infancy, so that one could say that it comes from the first generation of Christians. Very important. Thus, the Feast of the Presentation, older in the Eastern Church than in the Roman, has a firm traditional foundation. Moreover, there is nothing unlikely in her dwelling in the temple. Women could dedicate themselves to the Lord without taking part in any liturgical services as such, They could embroider and do the like things. There were buildings reserved for them. It was there that St. Joachim and St. Anne brought their child.
0: It's very interesting, Father. Yes. So what would the the part St. Joachim and St. Anne played in regards to the consecration of Our Lady herself and to our Lord in the temple? Um,
1: Well, uh, again, there is uh, a tradition, and it is quite likely that uh, her parents actually vowed to consecrate their child to God, and they fulfilled this vow by offering Mary in the temple, imitating Anna, the mother of Samuel, who, being sterile, had vowed to offer to God the son who would be born to her. So, as we spoke, the tradition is that to send Anne, having the to the Anna of the Old Testament, and she was ster- uh, sterile, she obtained by prayers uh, to conceive, and therefore they say, According to a tradition, the same happened. She offered the child to, to be consecrated to God, and that is very reasonable. Uh, St. John Damascene explicitly teaches this when he says, uh, quote, Just as the, the ancient Anna, suffering from sterility and having made a vow, gave birth to Samuel, so this other Anne, by her prayers and promise to God, merited to bear the mother of God and St. Alphonsus writes in the Glories of Mary, the Immaculate Infant understood afterwards that her holy parents, Joachim and Anna, had promised to God, even by a vow, as various authors relate, that if he should grant them a child, it should be consecrated to his service in the temple. For it was an ancient custom of the Jews to place their children in cells, which were near the temple, that there they might be properly educated.
0: And what about Our Lady herself? What part did she take in such an important change of her life which required that she leave her parents?
1: Uh, Well, uh, important to remark here is the fact that Our Lady had the use of reason uh, and she freely willed to consecrate herself more fully and more directly to God. So the parents had vowed it, but Our Lady fully agreed and actually herself wanted to do it. We have the the authority of St. Alphonsus, he says, he writes, when Mary knew of this vow, the one of her parents, as I have before said, she wished solemnly to offer and consecrate herself to God by presenting herself in the temple, as St. Germanus asserts, and also St. Epiphanius, who says that when she was hardly three years old, she was presented in the temple at an age when children have the greatest desire for the assistance of of their parents, and needed the most. She, continues Saint Alphonsus, was even then, even the first to entreat her parents earnestly that they would take her to the temple to fulfill their promise, and her holy mother Anna, as Saint Gregory of Nyssa says, did not delay to bring her there and offer her to God. I think now's the right time, Father, to speak about Our
0: Lady's vow of virginity, especially since some authors think that she made this vow at the time of her presentation, or at least during her days in the temple itself. What do the fathers, doctors, and theologians say on this point, Father?
1: Uh, Well, the first thing is this. It is certain that Mary took the vow of virginity before the Annunciation. Uh, This is evident from St. Luke. Uh, Our Lady says to to St. Gabriel, how shall this be done? Because I know not man. Now these words certainly signify that she had done already a vow of virginity. And speaking actually of this, St. Ambrose uh, remarks, Mary answered the announcing angel, how shall this be done? Because I know not man. She would not have said this unless she had already vowed her virginity to God. St. Ambrose, and then Benedict XIV, does not doubt that Mary made a vow of virginity, for he believes that her answer, how shall this be done because I know not man, is sufficient proof of her vow of perpetual virginity. And then it is also the common opinion that Mary took the vow of virginity before her marriage with St. Joseph. But as to the exact time uh, when she made it, uh, authors are not fully agreed. St. Thomas and many of his followers teach that Mary took the vow of virginity from the beginning. Others maintain that Mary made the vow of virginity in her early youth, Uh, for example, at the age of three when she was presented in the temple by her parents, that's Salmeron. Others say at a more mature age when the first uh, thought of virginity came to her and she pondered it, that's the opinion of Vasquez, and Others say when she reached the, the age in which commonly reason is attained in ordinary children, and that's around the age of seven or sometimes even five or six, and that's the opinion of the theologian Le Piscet. But again, the opinions are different, but they all agree, though, that it was certainly before the Annunciation. Now, had anyone else made a vow of virginity, Father, before Our Lady? Uh, no, Our Lady was the first of all to make this vow uh, and she was the first not only in time but also in dignity that is, she made it first as far as the time and also it was the the highest example or the best example of it. Um, we have to distinguish in this question the uh, practice of virginity that is as uh, somebody lives in the state of virginity all his life and the taking a perpetual vow to do so. There's obviously a distinction so, theologians admit that uh, certain remarkable and holy men like Elias, Eliseus, Jeremiah, and St. John the Baptist preserved their virginity, that is, they say were virgins the whole life. But it is not said, nor is it evident, that they actually make a vow of it. So, Our Lady was the first person ever to have made an actual vow of virginity. And then, after Our Lady, most likely soon after, St. Joseph was also inspired by the Holy Ghost to do the same. So he will be the second. And then uh, we have the testimony of St. Bit the Venerable, who says, Truly was she called full of grace, to whom was given by divine grace the privilege of being the first among women to offer to God her most glorious gift of virginity. So, Father, could you explain to our listeners how it was possible for
0: a lady to marry St. Joseph after she had made a vow of virginity? Uh,
1: Yes, it's our question. Um, Obviously, it will be uh, kind of extraordinary, but the vow of virginity is not an obstacle to the marriage between uh, Mary and St. Joseph because the actual immediate object of the marriage contract is the fundamental right over the bodies which the man and the wife give mutually. So, joined to the consent, there may be a free renunciation of this right even before the marriage by means of the vow of virginity, either on the part of both or on the part of one with, obviously, the consent of the other. Now, in the case of Lady and St. Joseph, both had vowed it and both knew it and agreed to it. Um, And lastly, we have to remember that certainly it is, you might say, extraordinary, but we have to remember that uh, our Lady's virginal marriage with St. Joseph was constructed under the special uh, inspiration of God and and under his direction. So therefore, all this happened through a divine ordination. And as I told you, St. Joseph himself was moved by the Holy Ghost also to make a vow of virginity, etc. Certainly it was very unique, but they could contract a valid marriage. True marriage. Father,
0: we know that according to the Hebrew custom, Our Lady was betrothed to St. Joseph, and there's even a feast day allowed in certain places celebrating that event. So, Father, when we speak about the betrothal of Mary and Joseph, do we mean it in exactly the same sense as in Christian
1: betrothals today? Uh, No, betrothal among the Jews was not the same as ours. Uh, Ours is a solemn promise of future marriage. In the old law the betrothal consisted in a true marriage even before the nuptials that is the betrothed enjoyed the marriage rights uh, although the bride did not live with her husband immediately after the espousal. that is you already had the rights but essentially it was not used and the right of, over the body of, of the other person uh, so the after the betrothal The woman continued to live in the Father's house until she was conducted by a ceremony to the house of her husband where the solemn nuptials were then celebrated. Father, we know of course that there was
0: no carnal union or anything of that nature in the case of the Virgin and the Chase Joseph, but still there was a true and proper marriage among them.
1: Uh, Yes, in the Gospel we see that Saint Joseph is called the husband of Mary and that Mary is called the wife of Joseph and obviously these titles cannot be properly applied to anyone who is not united in a true bond of, of matrimony. Now we know uh, also that Joseph is called the father of Christ and uh, our Lord is called on turn the son of Joseph. And uh, Our Lady and and Joseph together are called the parents of our Lord. So we know obviously from faith that St. Joseph didn't have any um, contribution naturally to the generation of, of Christ. And therefore, all of these touches we have seen actually can only be understood and do, do mean that they were actually joined in a true and proper uh, public marriage. And what do the Holy Fathers say on this matter? Um, St. Ambrose says that it matters uh, little that the Holy Scriptures frequently refers to her as a wife, Our Lady as a wife, for that does not refer to the loss of her virginity, but merely testifies to her marriage. And then St. Augustine says that, notwithstanding the fact that Our Lady was a natural mother of Christ, and Our Lady alone, because of their true marriage, both deserved to be called Christ's parents. And so again, that means St. Joseph was a parent of Christ, by a true, lawful and proper marriage. Uh, Now, here I would remark that some of the Fathers used some phrases which, if misunderstood, would seem to more or less obscure the truth that there was a true and proper marriage between Our Lady and Saint Joseph. So, for example, Saint Jerome says that uh, Saint Joseph was Mary's guardian rather than her husband. But in these and similar expressions, the only thing they, uh, the fathers mean was that their marriage was not consummated. There was no, in, no uh, carnal union. Uh, what they wanted to stress is that uh, the mother of God preserved her virginity intact and there, that there was no use of the marriage. That's what they mean.
0: How can one show that despite the fact that there was nothing carnal in the marriage between Our Lady and Saint Joseph, it was still a true and proper matrimony?
1: Well, the primary end of matrimony is a procreation and education or upbringing of children. Uh, Now, the procreation obviously is attained by marital intercourse and the education by the duties of husband and wife by which they help one another in rearing their offspring. Now, in the case of Our Lady and Saint Joseph, God himself had decreed that the Redeemer would be conceived and born miraculously of a virgin. And hence, obviously, Saint Joseph had no part in the generation of christ but nevertheless this marriage did obtain the end of upbringing at the child jesus his education uh, that saint Augustine says all the nuptial blessings are fulfilled in the marriage of christ's parents offspring faith and settlement the offspring we know to have been the lord jesus faith before there was no adultery, sacrament, since there was no divorce. Carnal intercourse alone, there was none. That's in Degasinan, but this is an important uh, quote because precisely carnal intercourse or the use of, mar- of the marital act is not of the essence of marriage. Uh, we have the Roman Catechism that teaches that besides the consent expressed by word of mouth by the two parties, The use of the marital rite is not necessary for true marriage. We have the testimony of St. Matthew. He tells us that St. Joseph was not merely the fiancé, but the actual husband of Our Lady. So we have this verse, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And here is actually very noteworthy that the evangelist does not say as one had to expect in the, in the context of the generation of our Lord were in the ordinary way, one had expected or would expect Joseph begot Jesus. But the evangelist uh, very precisely omits that and says Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Mary alone was born Jesus. Uh, but the point here is that he is certainly the husband, and uh, even though, as we just mentioned, the, there was actually no carnal union. Now, because precisely because St. Joseph was truly and properly married to Our Lady, uh, he was the adopted and legal father of our Lord. And St. Augustine actually uh, puts emphasis on this point, and he says in this quote, Joseph is said to be the father of Christ in the same way in which he is understood to be the husband of Mary, without carnal intercourse, by the connection of marriage, that is to say, far more intimately than if he had been adopted in some other way.
0: We can see from all this father that St. Joseph was chosen to be the foster father and legal father of our Lord, and the true spouse of the mother of God, This mission and office of St. Joseph was extremely exalted. In fact, the highest one after that of Our Lady. Is this the reason for the very special veneration that is rightly given to St. Joseph?
1: Yes, yes, precisely. Uh, The sublime dignity of St. Joseph, which renders him especially, particularly worthy of our veneration, is based on this unique privilege, uh, which he enjoyed, of being the legal Adopt him and foster father of our Lord and also the true husband of his mother, his blessed mother. So, of course, uh, somebody called to that mission had to be of the greatest sanctity, the highest sanctity actually after Our Lady. Um, So it is very uh, right that the faithful uh, unite in their devotion, Our Lord, Our Lady and uh, Saint Joseph and they uh, pray especially for the protection of the Holy Family, which is a model of all virtues. And then, uh, just as a historical footnote here, in the 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 only true Vatican Council uh, of the the 19th century, 153 uh, of the Fathers petitioned the Holy See to declare St. Joseph patron of the Universal Church, precisely because of what we have been seeing uh, what we have seen so far. Uh, and this wish was uh, gratified by Pius IX, and uh, the Pius IX declared St. Joseph the patron of the Universal Church, and his, uh, his veneration was further recommended by Leo XIII. Father, why was it fitting that Our Lady should marry St. Joseph? Theologians give arguments of convenience. Um, they give many def- they are the following. The first is that, in order that Christ be not rejected by the Jews as illegitimate, our Lord had to essentially do his public uh, life and his preaching etc and that uh, could not be if he was considered illegitimate. Then the second one would be that uh, our Lord's genealogy uh, had to be acknowledged as descended from David. The Messiah had to descend from David but the the descendants according to the Jews went through the father, not through the mother. So our Lord had to be perceived to come from uh, David from his father's side. Then the third is that uh, St. Joseph uh, uh, together with Mary, it was fitting that they serve as as helpers and guardians of the child Jesus and provided for uh, the necessities of his life. Uh, we have also a fourth that in you know, order that the birth of Christ be hidden from the devil and that the, under the veil of matrimony uh, until the time where our Lord, uh, it was a time for him to, uh, to start his public uh, preaching. And the, the fifth, there's a fifth one, which is that in you know, order that our lady be freed from the public infamy and the liability of being stoned, If the Jews saw that she was with child, but without being married, that's a very, very good point. And then the last one is that Saint Joseph might uh, be a a witness to uh, Our Lady's purity uh, and virgin birth.
0: So, since the sacraments of the new law had not yet been instituted, how was the marriage between Our Lady and Saint Joseph to take place, Father? Uh,
1: Well, like every contract, Marriage is perfected essentially by the mutual consent of the contracted parties. So it was not a sacrament, but it was a true marriage. Pope uh, Eugene IV states that the efficient cause of matrimony is generally the mutual consent expressed by words. And this applies to matrimony among all peoples under every law, whether it be the natural law, the mosaic law, as we're speaking here, or the Christian law. The difference, of course, is that among Christians, uh, after baptism, is actually a sacrament.
0: What do theologians say concerning the time when Our Lady married St. For To be more specific, was Our Lady married at the time
1: of the Annunciation or did she marry soon after it, Father? There are different opinions. The best opinion, though, is that of Cornelius de Suarez and Benedict XIV. Um, and also a theologian, PCA, who believed that Our Lady and St. Joseph were married before the Annunciation, and that Our Lady conceived after being not only betrothed, because they will all say that at least, but actually after being actually married to St. Joseph. And there's many reasons. One, the one they mentioned is that after the Annunciation, if Our Lady had not been already married, then it seems that according to the Gospel, she uh, would have gone directly to visit St. Elizabeth and stayed there three months. Month. So, which means that she could only marry after three months of her conception of our Lord, and therefore the gestation uh, would already show itself uh, in, in her womb, and therefore it will be, it be unbecoming because it will... Uh, be against the, the honor of Our Lady uh, because they will see her with child without being married. And then even if she married them, then she would be having her, uh, her child only six months after the marriage, which obviously is very, very unbecoming to the prestige of Our Lady. Um, so that's one of the main reasons they give why she was, she was actually married.
0: What are the opinions, father, of the doctors and theologians as to the age? At which Our Lady was married to Saint Joseph.
1: The most common opinion now is that of uh, Simon Aventure and their more recent theologians, uh, who believe that Our Lady was was very young, and they say about maybe about fourteen or fifteen years old. And it is very very probable because, according to well, because the files actually do tell us that the Jewish custom was to marry. Uh, of one's daughters when they were uh, very young. And we also know that from the history of the Jewish uh, nation. Uh, and there was no reason why Our Lady would be different. What about Saint Joseph? Well, here I will first point one thing is that you see in many pictures Joseph the, uh, depicted as having gray hair and being essentially uh, very advanced in age. The reason why they did that was to um, so that weak people, weak souls, don't uh, they don't have any idea of our of uh, Saint Joseph having anything to do in the carnal sense with the, in the marriage. But that that was the only reason. But speaking about how it actually happened, uh, the is a very common opinion is that Saint Joseph was not old when he married Our Lady, but rather he was in the age of a perfect man. Uh, which would be around 30 or at most 40 years of age and um, uh, Saint Joseph was given as a husband to Our Lady to be her protector and, and her guardian, the guardian of her, of her chastity, and also that the divine child could be attributed to, to, um, to him as, as the, the husband uh, by those who did not know the mystery that had happened. So all of these things make it Unfitting that he sh- should be old and especially the consideration that Saint Joseph was given as a help to raise, protect, feed, uh, educate our Lord and be a companion of Our Lady. So if he was in his per- perfect age, he would be more fitted to that. So they would th- say he was between 30 and 40.
0: And do we have any traditions or probable opinions, Father, as to how the marriage of Our Lady and Joseph was
1: arranged? Well, the first thing we have to notice is that obviously it was done by a very special providence of God and it was done in order to provide the most fitting family to the Redeemer. But the question would be more what about like the proximate occasion uh, speaking more in concrete terms and the proximate occasion that directly led to the arrangement of this holy marriage was actually Well, the best explanation given is, uh, the the most common one is the following, that there was a prescription of the old law, which law, obviously, Our Lady and St. Joseph were most eager to to keep in everything. And according to the old law, Our Lady would have have been bound to marry because she was the only child and heir of her parents' uh, goods So she had to marry St. Joseph, who was of her own family, uh, according to what is said in the book of Numbers. This is a quote, and all women shall take husbands of the same tribe, that the inheritance may remain in the families. St. Jerome actually proves this by saying that Mary and Joseph were of the same tribe, and according to the law, they were obliged to marry within the same tribe. And then St. John Damascene states it even more clearly when he says that St. Joseph, who was of the family of David and a just man, would not have married the Holy Virgin if she had not been of the same tribe. So essentially, according to what you are expected to do by the law, uh, they had to marry someone of their, the same tribe. Uh, and so it was the, the perfect, uh, obviously the perfect uh, match. And then both had made a vow of virginity, as we saw, so it was actually the perfect, obviously, match. And uh, so a theologian, uh, Lepicier remarks that God arranged the marriage of Joseph and Mary by no other means than the very prescriptions of the Mosaic Law.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode, Father. Is there anything else you would like to add in summary
1: before we close it out? Yes, today I will say that we have seen the very close union between Our Lady and Saint Joseph, and therefore, I encourage all our listeners to, to have great devotion to St. Joseph and uh, especially to cultivate it in union with devotion to Our Lady. And uh, this is very pleasing to Our Lady, that is, that we venerate St. Joseph because, as we saw, uh, uh, he uh, is her, her true spouse. And a way of practice is, uh, always there are many ways, but one thing I recommend is the invocation of the... Of the holy uh, names, of the holy family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. That's a prayer. Uh, has indulgences, seven years of indulgences each time, and that's a very way and simple way to uh, have a devotion to the holy family and to always keep Joseph uh, close to the devotion to our Lady.
0: Yes, it's certainly a beautiful prayer, sure, and you get a big indulgences. Yes, it's as a very rich. Most importantly, you're honoring the you. holy family. Yes. Well, Father, thank you for your time, and we will talk to you again next time as we continue this series. May God bless you. Thank you very much. God bless you.